Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 334, No Canute November. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Shauna, Tom, and Raina for signing up already. There are worse things than spending a holiday in Normandy. And one of those things is spending a holiday in Normandy because you just lost your entire kingdom to the Danes. And actually, that wasn't all that King Athelred had lost. By 1013, Edred, one of his younger sons from his marriage to Elf Gifu, had died. Now, records are poor enough that we can't be certain why or even exactly when he died. But for those of you who are keeping score, we're now down to just three sons from the king's first marriage. There was only the crown prince, Athelstan, and his younger brothers, Edmund and Edwig. And that means that against all odds, the House of Normandy was inching ever closer to the English crown. Or at least it would have been inching ever closer had it not been for the fact that Athelred had now lost the crown and was just couch surfing at his brother-in-law's place. And yeah, Athelred was now in Normandy, having joined his wife, Queen Emma, as well as their two sons, Edward and Alfred, who had already retreated to Normandy at an earlier date, which, let's be honest, wasn't that bad of an idea considering how dangerous England had become. So Athelred, Emma, and the kids were all safe in Normandy. And this also meant that the sons of Athelred and Emma were receiving their educations in Normandy from a bishop named Elfhun. And that seemingly small detail turns out to have had enormous consequences for the cultural development of the English crown. Because Normandy wasn't simply offering a refuge for the ousted English dynasty. It was also providing an education to the Athelings. And in turn, the young Athelings began to acquire some fluency with Norman customs and even developed a sense of kinship, or at least obligation, to the duchy. But while the Athelings Edward and Alfred were in Normandy with their mother Emma and Athelred and Bishop Elfhoon, their older half-brothers remained in England and occupied and conquered England, which makes me wonder what they're up to. You see, for whatever reason, Athelstan and Edmund appear to have been cut from a different cloth than the nobility that dominated their father's court. And the first strange thing about them is that they look like they're actually quite close and shared a good relationship, despite the zero-sum nature of the English noble culture of the era. And the other unexpected trait was their shared interest in martial matters. They both appear to have seen military leadership as one of their main noble duties. And so in many ways, what little we see of Edmund and Athelstan reflects a return to the cultural obligations that marked the old House of Wessex. I mean, sure, they might grab your lands, and they might irritate the clergy in particular because they tended to have some of the best lands. But they'd also try to defend the kingdom when they had to. For lack of a better term, they were old school. And Athelstan at this point would have been in his 30s, and Edmund somewhere in his mid-20s. So it makes me wonder if maybe growing up and seeing the damage that Athelred and his compatriots had caused was sufficient enough to swing this next generation in a different direction. But whatever the cause, it does seem like Athelstan and his siblings weren't as quick to leg it as Athelred, Elfridge of Hampshire, and the rest of them had been. And we're not told why they decided to remain behind when Swain took control of the kingdom. 
But based on what we know of Edmund, and also based on how Athelstan was spoken about in the records, my suspicion is that at the very least, they were preparing to launch a guerrilla war to retake the kingdom, likely similar to what Alfred had done from the swamps of Athelney. But whatever the brothers were planning, the fact remained that the king had fled. The kingdom had fallen. And the English were now left to figure out how they were going to cope with this sudden change in leadership. Now, for the common folk, there probably wasn't all that much of a difference in their day-to-day life. I mean, unless the common folk lived in an area that was near the army's location, chances are they didn't even experience any looting. So for the peasants, things probably continued much in the same way they'd always done. The king was still very far away. They likely still had to work for the same thing. They had to pay the same taxes. And they generally did all the same things that they'd been doing for the last half century or so. But for the upper echelons of power, for the people who were high-ranked, but not high-ranked enough to be able to escape with Athelred and his family, well, for them, the times, they were a-changing. And if you were one of those nobles, your opinion of Swain's conquest would likely depend heavily on whether or not you had something to gain from it, or to lose from it. For example, Elderman Uhtred of Northumbria was doing pretty damn well right about now, so he probably didn't mind kneeling to Swain instead of Athelstan. But not everyone in the north felt the same way. And in particular, the Archbishop of York, Wolfstan, was apoplectic. And it was right at about this point that he delivered his famous Sermon of the Wolf to the English. Now, this was Wolfstan's greatest work. And while we don't know the precise dating for it, it's largely believed to have been delivered shortly after Athelred was exiled. And when you read it, it's clear the archbishop was pissed. His huge thoughts and prayers offensive, which included mass prayers and even commemorative coins, had completely flopped. And now, Swain was the king of England. And so in the face of this, Wolfstan came to a new conclusion. And his assessment of the state of England is reminiscent of Gildas. In his view, the island was now ruled by a Dane, because the English were a bunch of dirty, sinful assholes who royally pissed off God. And you know what? Fair play. A lot of the sins that he was raging about were real problems, and they did need to be fixed. But that wasn't all that was on his mind. If you look at his summary of the reign of King Edgar the Peaceable, you also see that Wolfstan also believed there was another thing that was enraging the Almighty that needed to be addressed. Quote, One evil deed, however, he did too much, in that he loved bad foreign habits, and brought heathen customs too firmly into this land, and attracted the foreigner here, and introduced a damaging people into this country, end quote. Yeah, apparently God was mad that King Edgar, and the English in general, were cool with foreign ways, and mixed with people from outside of England. In short, they weren't being appropriately xenophobic, And that was causing strife with the divine. And I gotta say, even if this analysis was on the right track, it wasn't all that long ago that Athelred had literally tried to commit genocide. So what more could he do? But here, I'm inclined to think that Wolfstan was just letting his feelings get away from himself. And he was attacking anyone who had any contact with the Danes. But Wolfstan's strange perspective aside, this is still a fascinating document. And it's one of our most important primary sources for this period. And so, I've recorded the entire sermon on the members' feed. 
I've read the entire thing out for you so you can hear the full invective that Wolfstan delivered, and also so you can get a sense of the way that religion and calls for societal reform were blended together for the Anglo-Saxons. Because Wolfstan very much wanted the English to reform. But as the members will know when they listen to this sermon, what he delivered was very much a homily. So members, make sure to update your feeds and have a listen, because it will give you a good sense of what cultural forces were in play and how England was changing. But with that said, this sermon, and whatever the brothers were up to, was how England was responding to the events of 1013. But that's only half the story. What about King Swain and his triumphant army? Well, even though they'd conquered the kingdom, and as such probably could have wintered in London, Winchester, or even for old time's sake, Chippenham. Instead, the army decided to remain at their encampment at Gainsborough on the River Trent. Why? Well, if you think it was because Swain was feeling generous to London, think again. After London surrendered, they were so fearful of what Forkbeard would do next, they gave him hostages, tribute, and importantly, the right to forage. So London and the surrounding area were not getting off lightly. They were getting picked clean. And it wasn't just Swain's army that was foraging in the region. We're also told that Thorkell and his army, which was based at Greenwich, were doing the same thing. Consequently, London would not have actually been a great place to winter in 1013. And as for other major towns, well, wintering in those likely would have angered Swain's new subjects, even if the Danes were on their best behavior. And as a practical matter, it probably made the most sense to stay near their ships, not to mention their allies in the Dane law, by remaining in their encampment on the Trent. And I bet that also felt a lot safer than staying in an English city, considering that there were a few warrior athlings somewhere out there in the countryside, likely planning something. So, King Swain of Denmark, Norway, and England spent Christmas at Gainsborough. And then, on the 3rd of February in 1014, he died. We're not told what he died of, but he was in his 50s, and he lived a rather stressful and strenuous life. So it could have just been that. But, having ruled for only a matter of months, the king was dead. And that left England with the question, who was the new king? And that was actually a sticky issue, because you'll recall that in Denmark, they didn't strictly follow primogeniture. Instead, Danish succession was a matter of political strength and military strength. How strong is your claim? Who follows you? And what support do you have that says that you have the right to rule? In general, it led to some pretty strong leaders, but it could also create significant amounts of mess. And this is one of those circumstances, because there was now genuine confusion over who had the right to rule Denmark and the subordinate territories. For the fleet on the Trent, the answer was clear. They've served with Swain's son, Canute, and they've known him long enough to feel that they could trust him. So for them, they pledged themselves to him and proclaimed Canute king. And depending on how rapidly Swain died, it's even possible that Forkbeard nominated Canute himself. But there was a problem. Canute wasn't the only son of Swain. And the fact was, his oldest son, Harold, was already on the throne of Denmark, having been left to rule there in Swain's absence. So that means that we have one son who was favored enough to go on campaign with his father but another who was trusted enough to watch over the kingdom while they were gone. 
So who had the strongest claim? Who should get the English crown? It wasn't a settled matter. And as such, that gave the English a small window of opportunity. For the English who initially switched sides, their initial betrayal was a practical move in a lot of ways. I mean, Swain was terrifying, and that alone gave them a hell of an incentive. But beyond that, Athelred wasn't exactly a great king. And so they probably were thinking that the kingdom might benefit from some fresh blood. So initially, this might have seemed like a good idea. But you know how it is, right? At first, things are going well. You have that new liege energy, and everything's exciting. The Ludifisk, calling meetings things, it's all fresh. And you start to think maybe everything's going to get back on track. But after a while, that newness wears off. And you realize that you hate Ludifisk. And most of these things really should just be an email. You don't need to get together for every small matter. And suddenly, you start wondering what's going on at your old workplace. And were you too hard on your old boss? And, well, no, right? Like, Athelred was a terrible boss. But this minor succession crisis that Canute was dealing with did present a chance for Athelred to return to the throne, provided that he had the support of the English nobles. And that gave those nobles significant bargaining power over Athelred. So they sent a messenger to Normandy with terms. They would support Athelred's return to the throne if he promised to rule more justly and if he promised to institute reforms. The Chronicle literally uses the phrase, quote, if he would govern the better than he did before, end quote. Basically, they told Athelred to get good. But that wasn't all. They also demanded that he promise to forgive them for everything that they had done or said. Because these nobles didn't want to just bring this guy back only to have him use everything that they'd done previously as an excuse to exile them and take their lands. And fair play, right? That wouldn't exactly be out of the question for Athelred. And in response, Athelred sent his son, Edward, as his messenger. And Edward was likely only 12 or 13 at this point. And once on English shores, the tween Edward told the assembled nobles that Athelred would improve on all the areas that they disliked, and that they would be forgiven for everything that they'd done or said against him. On one condition. All of them, unanimously, must side with Athelred in this war without any treachery. The days of double dealing and abandoning their duties would be over if they wanted him back. If they were going to do this, they needed to be all in with absolutely no backbiting. It was a practical request, but it was also a bit rich if you consider that Athelred still had Edric Strayona serving as his chief counselor. But the nobles agreed to Athelred's terms, and oaths were taken. Athelred was to be their king once again, and they added that any Danish king, so Canute or whoever managed to win that succession contest, would be forever an outlaw in England. With that arranged, Athelred began to make his preparations to return to England. And I have to imagine that Athelstan and Edmund were working to prepare the forces of England for this return. However, that is just conjecture because the account is notably light on details about those two during this period. But meanwhile, in the Danish encampment, King Canute seems to have known that something was up. He was young and largely inexperienced, but it would take a fool not to expect some sort of response to this succession crisis, especially so soon after a conquest. So Canute turned to the people of Lindsay 
his new subjects, and he sought their support in the form of horses and men. And the people of Lindsay agreed. They would join Canute's army. But it was too late. Before Canute could even assemble his new combined army, Athelred and his forces were already on the move. And because Lindsay had not yet mustered, the English army struck there first. And they struck hard. Lindsay didn't see it coming, and they were completely unprepared for the ferocity of Athelred's attack. The English army plundered and burned their way through the Shire and, quote, slew all the men they could reach, end quote. This was such a brutal and overwhelming attack that King Canute decided it was better to withdraw rather than fight it out. And I don't know if it was a simple matter of lacking in confidence or if Canute had lost some of his men after his father had died. But the army that had so easily rolled up all of England in one campaigning season was now hastily retreating for fear of facing the English army that had risen up against them. And this moment in particular is one where I wish we had more information, especially regarding the efforts of Athelred's sons, Athelstan and Edmund. Because this sudden shift feels like someone had done a lot of planning and preparation before Athelred landed. And that someone is not getting any credit. But regardless, when King Canute fled the field, boarded his ships on the Trent, and sailed out to the coast of Sandwich, he had also abandoned his allies in Lindsay. And for the people left behind, this was a catastrophe. Athelred wasn't in a forgiving mood, and the people of Lindsay were ruthlessly executed by the English forces that were sweeping in. Which, like many of Athelred's decisions, was stunningly short-sighted. When Canute abandoned his new subjects and allies, he likely lost their loyalty. He was just leaving them twisting in the breeze. But rather than capitalizing on that, Athelred indulged his desire for vengeance, and thus ensured that the people of Lindsay would likely now hate him for his brutality as much as they hated Canute for his betrayal. But speaking of vengeful acts that lack foresight... Canute still had the hostages that the English had given to his father, and they were handed over as a promise of their loyalty. And those English weren't looking all that loyal these days. I mean, look at the size of that army. So Canute ordered that all the hostages would have their hands, ears, and noses cut off. And then, after mutilating them, he sent them ashore. It was a bold move, but considering that Canute still wanted to be king, and that the hostages were likely highborn Englishmen, or at least allies of highborn Englishmen, that wasn't exactly the best way to make a good first impression on the people you wanted to rule. But with that final brutal and honestly stupid act, Canute's time as the king of England was over. At least for now. He set sail for Denmark. The king has fled. Long live the king. And in describing these events, the Chronicle adds something that I think might help explain why Canute was so easily rolled up. We're told, in the middle of the entry that was talking about the retreat of Canute, that, quote, the king ordered a tribute to the army that lay at Greenwich of 21,000 pounds, end quote. Now, the army at Greenwich was Thorkell's army, or at least it had been. So did Athelred buy off a portion of the Danes in England, thus sapping Canute's strength in the field before he ever arrived? Or did he hire those Danes to bolster his army? Either one of those could explain why such an enormous sum was paid as a Danegeld on the same year where the English were enjoying unqualified success in the field. 
It also would be an example of a well-employed and intelligently used Danegeld, which might be why it's barely mentioned and why we don't get any details. Because the scribes who are writing these entries weren't all that fond of Athelred. So if this was an effective Danegeld, it's not likely that it would fit the narrative they were building. After all, these aren't unbiased histories. They're the entries of scribes who are trying to read divine signs and also trying to please their benefactors. But even if this was an effective use of a Danegeld, England was well past the point where it could afford to do these things. The Danegelds from just 1012 and 1014 would have accounted for over half of all the total late small cross style coins that were ever produced. Over half of those coins in just two Danegelds. The scale of these tributes meant that they were consuming huge portions of the kingdom's economic productions. So by this point in our story, it's very likely that these payments couldn't have even been fully paid in coins anymore. Instead, it's likely that gold and silver was being stripped from just about anywhere it could be found. So even in victory, England was getting looted. Meanwhile, the freshly evicted Canute had returned to Denmark. And it was a tough day to be Canute, but he still was the son of King Swain Forkbeard. So he went to his brother, who was now reigning as King Harold II, and he asked him for a share of Denmark. Now, Harold wasn't just the elder brother. He was also deeply entrenched in the power structure of Denmark, and he had experience on the throne. His little brother, on the other hand, had just lost the kingdom of England, been defeated without even engaging in one serious battle, and was foolish enough to purge his hostages, which meant that he couldn't even ransom them back or sell them at the slave markets. In a kingdom that considered political and military strength when selecting leaders, it would be hard to find a prince in a weaker position than Canute. Really, the only thing that he had going for him was that their dynasty had only recently nearly lost everything in a succession crisis, so it was unlikely that Harold would want to risk another one. But the fact was, Canute wasn't even in a position to launch a civil war. To fight a civil war, you had to have followers, and Canute lacked the clout that you'd need to gain those followers. So... King Harold II refused his brother out of hand. And so, in the span of just a few weeks, Canute had lost his kingdom and then even lost his safety title. But young Canute did have one thing on his side. Luck. You see, in his adventures, he'd acquired an advisor named Eric Clathier. And Eric was probably the most famous warrior in Scandinavia. He'd begun his campaigning about 30 years earlier and was critical in the overthrow of Olaf Tryggvason and the elevation of Knut's father, Swain Forkbeard. For this period, Eric Lathier was something of a superstar. And many scholars agree that had Eric been a bit more ambitious and ruthless, it probably would have been Eric on the throne, not Harold. But Eric apparently had limits to his ambitions, and he was content to support the claims of others and he had decided to support Canute. So, with the superstar of Denmark signed on, suddenly crews that were looking for adventure began to take an interest in Canute. And one of them was Thorkel the Tall. Yeah, that Thorkel. We don't know precisely why he left England and Athelred, but one saga claims that Thorkel's brother, Hemming, was killed by the English in a treacherous move. 
and if that's true, it certainly would have provided motive for Thorkell to switch sides. And frankly, given Athelred's tendency for being underhanded and vengeful, it's not out of the question that Athelred might have taken Hemming and his men into his company, perhaps even as part of that Danegeld situation. And then, once Canute abandoned England, he decided it would be cheaper to kill the mercenaries rather than pay them. I mean, it is a classic life hack, and it certainly would have pissed off Thorkell. But whatever caused the riff, Thorkell and nine warships were available, and so they signed up with Canute's growing fleet. With nowhere to retreat to, Canute was preparing to risk it all to retake the kingdom. And then, on June 25th of 1014, disaster struck the House of Wessex. Athelstan Atheling, the warrior prince and firstborn son of Athelred, died. It appears that Athelstan knew his death was coming because he gained his father's permission for a will shortly before his death. And actually, it's only this small fact that allows us to identify when he died. You see, his obituary, which is found at Christ Church, only mentions that he died on June 25th. It doesn't state a year. But thankfully, we're told that Athelstan received permission for the will, quote, on the Friday after the Feast of Midsummer, which is the 24th of June. Well, in 1013, the Friday would have been on the 26th, and in 1015, it would have been on July 1st. But on 1014, it landed on the 25th of June, just like the obituary said. So he likely died on 1014 right after the kingdom had been retaken from Canute. Which means that the victorious King Athelred now only had two living sons from his first marriage. Edmund, who, let's be honest, had come a long way from extorting hapless monks in Devonshire, and young Edwig. All the rest of Athelred's sons came from his marriage to Emma of Normandy. But beyond the fact that Normandy is getting ever closer to the English crown, Athelstan's death is also important because it provides us a will. And this will gives us a rare glimpse into the Atheling's social circle, and even his politics. Because if you look at Athelstan's will, you can see the shadows of a generational break, or at least a frustration that had been brewing between the two brothers and Athelstan and his courtiers. You see, it turns out that Athelstan had a lot of stuff to give away, because of course he did. He was the crown prince. And in his will, which survives at Christ Church and also at Old Minster, we see that Athelstan had land in at least 10 counties, as well as 11 swords, a coat of mail, a couple shields, a silver trumpet, and horses. And all those were his to be given out upon his death. And some of those bequests are what you'd expect. He gave a lot of stuff to his brother Edmund, who he was very close to and would now be the crown prince. But one of the gifts to Edmund jumps right off the page. Athelstan gives him a sword listed as belonging to King Offa of Mercia. And at least to me, a gift like that highlights both of the brothers' shared focus on military leadership, but also the importance of retaining authority over the Midlands. But while Offa's sword is intriguing, it's the rest of the will that really grabs my attention. Because it has a lot of shade in it. But to understand the shade that's being thrown, and the potential new faction that was forming we need to remember back to when Wolfnoth Childe was due to take part in that naval defense of England that was under the command of Britric, the brother of Edric Streona. 
As you might remember, before military operations had even begun, Britrick accused Wolfnoth of some unnamed but terrible crime, and then likely seized his lands with King Athelred's support. And this act led Wolfnoth to leave the navy, and a huge portion of the fleet decided to join them. And once they broke free, we're told that they took up a new life as pirates, with Britrick in pursuit. But Britrick sucked at being a sailor, so his fleet was destroyed, and then he immediately disappeared from the record, presumably dying there or shortly thereafter. Wolfnoth also disappeared from the record, so he probably died as well. This whole thing had been a debacle, and it had Edric Strayona written all over it. And here's where the story links into the will of the Crown Prince of England. You see, Athelstan didn't just leave stuff to Edmund. He also left properties to Godwin, son of Wolfnoth. We're told that he gave Godwin, quote, the estate at Compton, which his father possessed, end quote. And considering that Britrick and Wolfnoth had both disappeared from the record after Wolfnoth's land had been seized, it's entirely plausible that his lands had found their way into Athelstan's possession. And yet here we have Athelstan giving them back to Wolfnoth's heir, not to Britrick's heir, who likely would have been the incredibly influential Edric Strayona. Furthermore, Athelstan also left gifts for Morcar and Sigafirth, who, like Godwin, were also enemies of Edric Strayona. It might mean nothing, but it also could be an indication that a faction was forming against Edric, and it seems that at least one of the king's sons was a member of it. And frankly, I'm pretty sure that Edmund was on board with this as well. And finally, it's notable to look at who was included in this will, and also who was ignored. You see, Athelstan mentions his father, his grandmother, and even his foster mother. But as for his own mother, he says nothing. Similarly, he doesn't mention his stepmother, Queen Emma of Normandy, nor his half-brothers, Edward and Alfred. And looking at this, it's hard to see it as anything other than a rift within the royal family. And further reinforcing this theory, Athelstan was buried at Old Minster, the seat of the West Saxon kings of old. But it hadn't been used in generations. And you might remember that the last person who was buried there was King Edred. And that was notable because he chose to be interred at Old Minster, even though his father, Edward the Elder, had finished New Minster and he was buried there. And that was intended to be where the royal family would now stay. That act has led many scholars to suspect there was a deep division between Edred and his father. And here we have Athelstan selecting that same minster for his burial. And that selection is all the more interesting when you consider the fact that he was giving a ton of gifts to the enemies of his father's chief counselor. It seems to me that a fight was brewing in the royal halls of power. And now, with Athelstan dead and the various endowments distributed according to his will... Edmund became the heir apparent. He was one of only two living sons of the marriage between Athelred and Elfgifu. All the rest of Athelred's heirs were linked to Normandy. The year was only halfway over, and already England had gone through three kings and lost a crown prince. And I'm pretty sure that everyone was hoping for a little bit of a breather. And then, on September 28th, quote, came the great sea flood, which spread wide over this land and ran so far up as it never did before, overwhelming many towns and an innumerable multitude of people, end quote. Because of course it did. 
And meanwhile, far to the north, Knut, Thorkel the Tall, Eric Lafier, and their Scandinavian fleet were making their preparations for invasion. You know what? Maybe Wolfstan was right. Maybe God did hate the English. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join any of our other communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>